Welcome to Applied. I'm Baron Gogan. I'm here today with Eric Ishiwata, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at CSU and Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Office of Engagement and Extension at CSU. Eric has taught courses on race and racism and immigration and refugee issues in the United States. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI as it is usually shortened to. Some organizations are using DEIJ, which adds justice. And I'm a little bit curious about that. Is that something that is still kind of up for debate? Or is it just depend on your organization and which one you choose? Yeah, you know, I think it's still an emerging field. I think there's a lot to be worked out. And there's really not an established canon of exactly how it should be done or how it can be done. It's pretty clear if you just look at the trajectory of the field, it had a, uh, a significant boom in the summer of 2020 and the years after. We might be in the twilight of that boom right now. Really? But, you know, I, I came into the work as both an academic and a community organizer, and I think that's been probably the way in which I've jumped into the DEI work as well, as like mixing in equal parts of my research and academic-based and fieldwork-based with actual hands-on community organizing. And uh, those tools have been helpful to me, and I just am moving forward in that direction, and it seems to be working out with my particular approach to DEI. Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to jump into it, and I am really impressed when I see other people uh, in this role doing great work in other fields. Our organization, though, is the Office of Engagement and Extension, and it's a service-based organization. It's really working to provide access to the information, resources, and opportunities of campus to the whole state. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think everybody that's in our organization is really focused on service service facing out into communities and engaging with communities. And so for me, I think the bulk of the focus has been how can we work to make sure that the door to CSU is open as widely as possible, as responsibly as possible to all the residents of Colorado. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think other folks may be doing with DEI or DEIJ work within a corporation are probably focused more centrally on workplace climate. Uh, that's a component of the work that we do here. And we're excited of what we've accomplished so far. We know we have a lot more to do around workplace climate. Right. Uh, but I think uh, the main focus is making sure that we are responsibly and equitably serving everybody who resides within Colorado, and giving them access to the university. It makes sense. So when it comes to DEI work, with an organization, you have kind of an outward facing and an inward facing component, and you have to kind of strike a balance with those. Yeah, and they're linked, right? And that if you do not have a workplace and staff that are feeling whole and healthy and seen, and if you don't have a staff that is representative of the diversity of the populations you serve, uh, there are going to be barriers to access and barriers to service. And so I can't neglect either side, that we kind of have to have focus on both simultaneously in order to ensure that we're hitting those promises that we've made, I think, to the state of Colorado. So could you briefly explain your view on those areas? So starting with diversity, how would you define diversity or what does that mean to you and why is it important? Well, I think, you know, for diversity is probably largely 
informed by intersectionality and uh, it's academically based. I know that uh, it became a hot term uh, in 2020, 2021, and I think a lot of people have a one-sentence definition of what intersectionality means to them, and they talk about how it's this nexus of race, ethnicity, gender, class, religion, sexuality, ability. But uh, I think one of the privileges that I had based upon my background is really being able to jump into the literature and being able to think about not just what does that intersectional approach mean in terms of the other term inclusion, but also as a community organizer, you know, we would really focus on trying to ensure that our participants represented a cross-section of the communities we were working in. And that cross-section meant also not only ethnicity and race, but also age, also sexuality, ability, uh, educational attainment. And I really draw a lot from Scott Page and uh, his work on super additivity, where his thing is like one plus one equals three, and he has clinical trials and studies that show within his studies that uh, all things being equal, that uh, diversity uh, trumps ability. And that the reason for this is if you have a work group of eight engineers and uh, they're all coming from MIT and they all represent the top 1% of graduates from MIT, they're going to be able to solve a ton of problems. But because those eight engineers are coming perhaps from similar backgrounds, similar experiences, they're going to have similar ways of approaching problem solving. Mm -hmm. And the chance then is that if you stump one of them, you're going to stump all eight Mm. because they have this heuristic, this way of approaching problem solving that's going to be undiverse. And so the idea here is that for Scott Page's study, that if you had still qualified engineers, but maybe instead of being just the top one or 2% from the best schools, it was a cross-section of different institutions, each of those eight representing different cultural backgrounds, different identities, different values, that when one of them gets stumped, there's a chance that the other seven might have a different way of looking at the issue in ways that open the door to coming up with a like a candidate solution. And I think I'm not in any position to judge like the validity of his clinical trials, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And that as we were doing community organizing work, that became, I think, a guiding principle. Mm -hmm. And as I've been able to make the leap from what we were doing at the community level into an organization level, I just hold those principles and Scott Page's findings uh, to heart. And as I'm trying to form work groups and committees, I'm thinking of diversity in that way, is that it's a cross-section of not just necessarily one segment, but it's going to be people that can bring different experiences, different identities, different values, different problem-solving approaches to the table. And I've just been so fortunate to work with committees and groups that uh, have proven that uh, we're stronger together and we're stronger when we're diverse. Right. I've read some statistics that more diverse work groups function better and often create better results and are even better at innovation because they have a diversity of perspectives that allows them to see more than one solution or even more than three solutions or more ways to get to the solution. Yep, I think that's precisely what that study was talking about. And then inclusion is kind of part of that 
I imagine, when we're talking about being inclusive as an organization, what does that really mean? Yeah, for me, that comes more from my organizing background. And so in 2011, I had a sabbatical. I had just been awarded tenure in the College of Liberal Arts. And so it was my first semester where I had uh, a little bit less pressure on publishing based upon my prior training and was able to think about what work do I want to do and sort of reinvent the research focus. At the same time, I had an invitation to partner with a small nonprofit organization in Eastern Colorado. And this community in Eastern Colorado was undergoing an incredible rate of like rapid demographic transformation due to an influx of foreign-born workers. Mm. And uh, this small nonprofit was doing everything within its power to try to build those intercultural connections and make sure that not just safety, but also health, both education opportunities, employment opportunities, but also cross-cultural connections were being made. And I showed up to uh, one of their committee meetings and they said, we just are kind of grasping at straws on how to move forward. Do you have any ideas on other communities that have been in similar situations that have figured things out for us and and that we can draw from? And I didn't have answers immediately, but I just did a national survey of all the community organizations doing similar type of work. And it also ended up being a North American survey. And it became really clear that there was a small pocket outside of Vancouver in British Columbia that was having incredible success dealing with similar types of challenges as Eastern Colorado, but they had started that work in like the 1990s. And by Mm. 2012, they were already seeing like the fruits of what all that work could do. So uh, I just sent out an email. Would you be open to me dropping by your community center and just seeing what makes you work? I was fortunate that they uh, accepted me for what was the first of like week-long visits and I got to just see exactly what makes that Collingwood neighborhood house outside of, you know, like about a half hour outside of downtown Vancouver, what makes them work. Mm. And they had just one tool that really stuck with me and I think has uh, shaped my understanding of inclusion was that at, at the end of every art class or the end of every badminton session or cooking class, they wrapped it up by saying, who's not here? And they'd look around the room and they'd be like, look, we've got a lot of gender diversity here, but we're kind of everybody's in their 20s. So what are we going to do next week to make sure that we bring some of our youth and some of our seniors to the table? Or they'd say, look, everybody here pretty fluent in English. How can we rethink our art program in ways that makes this as inclusive to folks who uh, prefer to speak in uh, languages other than English? And Mm. that simple trick of asking who's not here and then coupling it with action steps of what are we gonna do next week to try to make it open. I think that informed all of my community work from 2020 on, or 2012 on. And, um, and then when I came into the Office of Engagement Extension, it's the same tools that I've been, I've been using here. It's mm. just who's not here and what can we do to make it, make it happen. So it's looking at inclusion is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. You have to be engaged and actively assessing that and trying to do something to move change. Absolutely. And you're keying on the central point because I I see other organizations that are taking an approach to inclusion, which they're satisfied with. And they say, well, look, we don't turn anybody away. Our, Our doors open for 
anybody. So anybody who wants to walk into our classroom can do it. Anybody who wants to walk into our office can. And I think the lesson I learned from Collingwood is uh, that's insufficient. Mm-hmm. It's not just enough to say we don't turn folks away or the doors open, that you have to be willing to take action steps to grab somebody's hand and carry carry them in with you as a partner. Say, hey, look, trust me. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I think you're going to enjoy it. If you don't like it, we'll figure it out. But it's that reaching out, the actual reaching out and walking them in to make it happen. Whether you're talking in terms of HR practices around hiring and retention, whether you're talking about uh, participant recruitment into classes and programs, it is that commitment to reaching out and bringing people in. Right. Just having a door open might not do anything, but outreach, outreach will. Yeah, I think saying the door's open is is just checking the box. Right. Is saying that we're not being explicitly exclusionary. It's the bare minimum. Right. Uh, and every organization is on a different stage of their growth in DEI, uh, and maybe maybe that's a first stage, and that's you know that's better than nothing. But it was insufficient for us, yeah. and uh, we're we're still working on it. But I think we're making um, measurable gains towards achieving it, and I just owe it all to Collingwood Neighbor House, Neighborhood House in Vancouver. Nice. And as you said, it's not a quick fix. It's an investment in time that's going to take, it might take a decade for a community or an organization, but that's worth the time. Yeah. And that organization, which I think is a global model for inclusion, after 10 years, they were still asking themselves who's not here. It's a continuous improvement. Right. It doesn't uh, stop. Yeah. There's not a destination. It's not the end zone and we're going to like cross the line and say we're done. Yeah. It's always working because the dynamics of the communities change, the dynamics of the organization change. And so in order to really be representative and inclusive, it requires that persistent introspection Mm -hmm. and an effort. Makes a lot of sense. So we've covered diversity and inclusion. What about equity? Now, my understanding is that equity is not necessarily the same as equal. Those are a little bit different. There's some nuance there. Could you kind of give us your perspective on that? Yeah, I'll give you my take on equity. And I think through it, you'll understand why I don't add the J because I I don't really view equity possible without a sense of justice, right? And so for this, I draw at my core from Iris Marion Young and uh, her book, Justice and the Politics of Difference. And in this, she makes a distinction between distributive justice and social justice. And distributive justice is an equal amount. And so an equal distribution of wealth, opportunities, and resources uh, that's distributed equally. Everybody gets the identical same amount. The difference between distributive justice and social justice is that social justice recognizes that everybody who comes to the table has a different history, a different identity, and a different experience. Mm. And that each of us, because of our intersectional identities, we're enfranchised in some ways and disenfranchised in others. And that difference in experience between um, historical or ancestral injustice, discrimination, institutional barriers to social mobility. That means that if you have just a mere equitable distribution of goods, or I mean a mere equal distribution of goods, that uh, it ends up shortchanging some folks because some folks are coming at it from, um, 
from a deficit, from a bit of a hole. They're not all on a level playing field to start. Once we all get to a level playing field, then society can operate fairly in this distributive mode of equality. But it's the recognition, though, that we have work to do before society truly is uh, at that level playing field. Whether we're talking about the experiences of indigenous and Native Americans, of African Americans, of women, of LGBTQ plus folks, that there have been throughout the course of U.S. history institutional barriers that have impeded their advancement in terms of wealth and income, in terms of political capital, social capital. And so that social justice is saying that given the disparities or the unevenness of power, wealth, and privilege that exists throughout society, the just or equitable thing would be to recognize those differences and then try to put into place measures that enfranchise folks, specifically when it comes to decision-making power. Right. It's not just an allocation of money or just an allocation of opportunities, but I think at its core, it's an allocation of power. Right. And, and so what does that look like then if you have uh, folks at a table with different backgrounds, different experiences, different barriers to advancement? What does it look like if you're gonna have an equitable approach to, to decision-making power? It would mean that maybe some people are foregoing their vote or backing away and staying silent and, and mm. making room to allow other folks who historically haven't been in the position to steer the ship an opportunity to call to, to make decisions and call the shots. Right. That's how it works conceptually. It's a beautiful book. And I think the challenge then is like, how can we import some of those principles into the practice of everyday business life, organization, university life? And it's yeah. it's it's tricky, but it's been useful for me to hold that as like the North Star. So we're talking a little bit about theory, and then when it comes to putting that into practice in an organization, what does that look like? Because I imagine that, it, like you said, that is tricky, and it can cause a lot of tension because it's not about everyone gets the same, because that's oversimplifying, and that's underserving people who are starting from a deficit. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine there are challenges there. And of course, you get politics that can come into play and perceptions and things like that. It can be hurdles. Yeah, that's the that's the challenge of the job. I think right. that the, like that's the puzzle in front of us every day, because uh, as committed as I want to be towards this social justice principle, I also have to make sure that the ways in which we're honoring that does not create harm or injustice to others right and uh that it's it's a calculus that's complicated and i don't have like clear answers on it i know the easiest moves i can make are the ways in which i operate right, right? which are what uh so in meetings i'm always gonna have ideas i'm always gonna want to share those ideas but i think one of the ways i folded this in is to recognize that I come into these meetings with a lot of privilege based upon uh, not just my position, but also my educational attainment, my gender, my class. And uh, as a result, the ways in which I try to operate in these equitable ways is uh, to bite my tongue. 
or or just listen listening and the other thing is not just biting my tongue but making space for others and clear clearing out the zone so other people who maybe have been waiting but don't feel like their voice is fully valued or incorporated making the space for them and saying things specifically like i know you have great things to say on this you've said really incredible things to me in the past do you want to share them now yeah. And more often than not, these folks have been just waiting for, for their time to shine. And it's very easy, I think, in the course of a normal business proceeding to just give the mic to the folks that have the most dominant voices or the most power and prestige mm-hmm. within the setting. But if we go back to our thinking about diversity and we think about the ways in which we're stronger when we're bringing these multiple perspectives, heuristics, problem-solving approaches in, it's stronger for the collective the more we can bring these other voices in. And that means actively working to elevate some folks and then, in my case, shutting up and and understanding that uh, I've received plenty already. I've received plenty of recognition already, and right. now's the time for me to not just listen, but also learn from other folks. You mean the extroverts don't always have the best solutions and answers? They do as much as everybody else, right? <laughs> and so uh, I am very committed, and I hope people see this in the meetings that I'm a part of, of like trying to interject when I think I can contribute something that hasn't been said yet, but every other moment trying to clear the space and enfranchise or empower other members who might be ignored, overlooked, or might be content to just keep their opinions to themselves and try to support them in sort of a leadership development path to where they have the opportunity and the confidence to um contribute to the conversation so this one thing that you're talking about right now is it's something anyone could do in any organization and it's actually really touching all three areas of dei if you think about it it's including more people in the conversation it's more equitable and you're beginning a more diversity in your organization in terms of who has a voice yeah and so for me when i think about dei it's more about power it's more about bringing as many people in into decision-making processes as possible and less about are we up to date on the latest terminology? Uh, do I have the coolest stickers on my cup and my, my laptop to signal to other people that I'm down with the movement? Right. I, I think those are important things. I think social media outputs are important things as well, but that can't be all that DEI is doing. And that if I'm thinking about what is transformative, what's going to help institutions live up to those promises that it's made for diversity, equity, inclusion, it comes down to distributive power. And so what we just talked about in meetings, that's a micro level of power sharing. And then there are a variety of ways of scaling that up when it comes to the feedback needed for the formation of strategic plans. What goes into budgeting decisions? What goes into the crafting of job descriptions, but then also the formation of search committees and the criteria for search committees when you're bringing on new staff members? As much as possible, I'm trying to ensure that we're making the best decisions possible by including as many people as possible. So you were going into a brand new organization, not CSU, and they're struggling with some issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and they came to you and asked you, where do we even start? What would you say? This is the same way that I did community organizing, and I want to understand the history, culture, and values and economics of an organization. Who are the people? When they say people like us do things like this, what's the, what's the history, what's the organizational culture that informs it? What are some of the major blow-ups or disputes that have happened in the past? How have decisions been made? How have disputes been resolved? And then also, what are the values? What does this organization view as being worthwhile and important versus what do they view as being a distraction or outside of mission? And uh, it's helpful to look at the mission statement, but anybody who's been involved in an organization knows that the mission statements are sometimes just a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's digging into the history and having conversations with multiple stakeholders within the organization to truly figure out not what does the organization say about itself, but how does it actually operate and how does it reward folks on a day-to-day basis? Are they really living the values that they've put forth or are they just words on a page or a poster, right? I don't even care about that. I think every, I think accountability is cool and all that, but for sure. me, I just want to know what are the values that are, they are that are being practiced day to day. It doesn't matter to me if there's a gap between the way the, cor- the culture actually is versus what it says it is, but I do need to know how does it operate on a day to day? What happens when somebody has an idea and, and they want to they want to introduce it to their group. Does it get shot down? Does it get okay. encouraged? Is it supplemented with resources? Do they get recognition? Like, those are the things that help me understand the living culture of the organization. And then the second thing would be that if we're thinking about organizational growth, uh, this is an unpopular opinion, mm-hmm. and uh, and I I really respect people who have a deep background in organizational development. And when I talk to them, they make it really clear that they want to encourage intrinsic growth, that we want everybody within the organization to want to change and grow and better themselves in based upon their own motives. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. But I've been thrown into situations where we had to make rapid changes based on external forces. And because of that, the second thing I'm going to look for are what are the carrots and sticks Okay. How can we reward the types of growth that we want to encourage? And are there any forms of sanctions that exist that can discourage uh, the types of behaviors or decision makings that are working against the mission and principles that we're trying to live up to? I see. And you probably need both. If you only have one, a carrot or a stick, it's probably not going to work as well. Well, I've been pulled into organizations where people said, look, we need to grow, and we have no carrots, and we have no sticks, so good luck. Neither. Yeah, and wow. so uh, so it, it requires more digging in that case. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to just start giving out gold stars or timeouts to everybody, and I probably won't give out gold stars or timeouts to anybody, but I want to know what are those levers for change? What are the high leverage points what, what types of things can we do to make people move outside their comfort zones when probably they can live out their entire career in the safety of their comfort zones and, uh, you know, continue to get paid and continue to get... And would prefer to. And, right. And so we're asking them to embrace something that's uncomfortable. And because of that, I want to know 
what what's going to make it worthwhile for them. Mm. When you encounter resistance or possibly even worse, pretend buy-in or buy-in that's not real from leadership or just straight up resistance from leadership, because I imagine none of this work can really be effective without at least some buy-in from leadership. And because you, like you mentioned, there's a power dynamic at play. How do you navigate that? I think I've been really fortunate to have leaders who've been supportive and committed to the proposals that I put forward. And uh, I, I think there are members within the organization that want to see our leaders be more vocal in that support. But I can say that every time I introduce a proposal within our organization, it's been approved mm. and it's been backed by the resources that we needed to implement it. And so I'd rather have green lights and resources to make change rather than just words that are maybe empty, like, oh, yes, DEI is important to us, but can you do it on no budget? Right. Um, what if someone, and this is kind of a hypothetical, if someone out there is trying to do this and they're running into a wall with leadership, they're saying there's no budget, I'm sorry, or they're saying this is really important work, but their actions aren't really backing that up, what would they do? Yeah, so... I'm going to go back to what I said as my first step of trying to understand the culture, history, and values of the organization. I'm not just proposing random stuff. Yeah. That I really think about the proposals and I make sure that the proposals are aligned to the mission and values of the organization. And so in some respect, I make it easy for leadership to support it because instead of just saying we want to implement this new project or we want to we want to bring in these trainers, I'm saying, look, we've said as an organization that we're trying to increase our metrics by X amount. I've done the background research. I'm confident based upon who we've consulted with and who this, the listening sessions we've done internally that if we provide this type of opportunity, we're going to see these types of results, mm. which you've already said you're committed to, and you're going to get it for the low cost of X amount of dollars. And because it's framed in their values, they give me the green light. And so here's the other part of it is that I think part of the reason I get the green lights is because I've earned trust from leadership. Mm. And this is a lesson I've learned from community organizing. Trust is earned by making promises and keeping promises. And so every time I receive the go-ahead from leadership and resources to make a project happen, uh, I make sure that we implement it and I make sure that we circle back and let those leaders understand this is what your investment created. Yeah. These are the outcomes that uh, were produced or generated by something that wouldn't have existed otherwise, but you helped make that happen by saying yes. And that doesn't mean that every project has to be 100 out of 100. It doesn't have to be perfect. But we do want to talk about how we're growing and learning in each, each time. And even if it is a dump, we're going to say it's a dump, but we know it's a dump because we did A, B, and C. And next time we're going to do th three different other things. Yeah, you learn from the mistakes as well. And you can move forward from there. And at least in our organization, that commitment to learning and growth and experimenting and continuous improvement, that's our value. And so by framing the DEI efforts within those values, 
We've been very fortunate, but also successful to have, I think, pretty significant string of wins. And I imagine this speaks to another question that a lot of folks working in this area or with interest in this area probably want to know, and that's proving the success or the return on investment. Like, how do you measure this stuff and where do you even start there? Because that's what the results are going to need to show. Yeah. So again, this goes back to understanding the values of the organization. And in our organization, we have a value of, of data. And so that once I learned that, it became really clear to me that the way that I demonstrate success and growth is through data. So then all of a sudden, all of our big initiatives, we have pre-implementation surveys and post-implementation surveys. And these are nothing incredibly sophisticated. These are Likert scale, strongly agree to strongly disagree questions of like, before August 2020, I knew exactly where to find resources for reasonable accommodations, strongly agree or strongly disagree. Mm. And then we run those surveys again after implementation, maybe after eight months, maybe after 12 months. And every time the arrows are going up, I don't really have uh, leadership that's like interrogating the de data and asking like what's the variability or you know, they just want to see that there is some level of measurement that's taking place yeah. and moving the needle the meat that the needle is being moved and in in the right direction and in the moments where the needle's not going where we expected that there there's an explanation there's learning and there's a new strategy around it yeah and so i don't think there's a lot of value in my organization for just saying I did 10 trainings. They, they wanna see that uh, there's a return on an investment and they look at that return on investment on the ways in which employees are recognizing growth, the way that participants are recognizing increased opportunities or increased satisfaction, and that the way that our partners are feeling more prepared and more um, uh, confident and capable of, of supporting us. And so, for us, that came in the form of data. Other organizations, yeah. it might be other things, and that's why I think it's really important to figure out each culture. Yeah. But once you know that culture, feed it. Now, as you probably know, surveys are somewhat flawed in terms of a measurement tool. I mean, they do work pretty well, but they don't always paint a holistic picture or a totally accurate picture. Are there other tools that should be included? as well besides just surveying? Well, so we also do listening sessions and barrier analyses in focus groups. And then we also just have continuous feedback through one-on-one conversations and that uh, people know that, uh, or maybe they don't even recognize it, but when I meet folks, say, hey, what'd you think about this one? Or what'd you think about that session? What would make it different? So it is a multifaceted approach. But I do want to say though, is that in my situation, the leadership team is not looking for deadly certain science. They're just looking, is there a way for us to measure growth or effort? Mm -hmm. And if there is, it's, it's not just sufficient, but it's worthy of continued support. And so I'll leave it to other folks who are interested in trying to get holistic measurements or capturing not just outputs, but outcomes and impact, that's fine. But you don't have to, not everybody has to do that all the time. Right. And I do want to have my time focused on organizational growth 
not on organizational measurement. Other people can do, do the measurement, right? But for me, I view my time as being successful if we are achieving our DEI goals in ways that were uh, seemed impossible three years ago. That makes a lot of sense to me. Here's another thing though, when it comes to capturing, capturing growth, and I'm, I'm seeing in the span of five years that the white paper report, that three to five page report, that's becoming eclipsed by video testimonials. And that if you had a 30 second video captured on your phone from a participant saying, I love this program. I never thought an opportunity like this would be available to me, but this is exactly what I've been looking for. And if you can share that with your decision makers, share it on your social media platforms, in most respects right now, that seems to be more impactful than having a holistic multimodal data analysis yeah. for, for evaluation. The social proof. It's Snapchat. just how people are consuming consuming information these days. And mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to read a 35 page report. I'll write them, but I don't feel like anybody reads them. <laughs> and when we do put out videos, uh, we have hundreds and thousands of views. And so, yeah. Instead of being stubborn, uh, I just am recognizing this. And then as we move in the move forward, it's incorporating more video testimonials, short, cheap video testimonials yeah. to demonstrate. Nothing super fancy. You could be on a phone. It's better if it's on a phone. That's we're, we're doing more listening authentic. sessions. Yeah, that's exactly what they say, that if it gets too polished, they start to become suspicious. It becomes a PR campaign. Exactly. Yeah. And so there is... Uh, we're hearing from Colorado residents, there's a value to things that look like TikTok because they view it to be more authentic. And yeah. I hope communications people like you don't start exploiting that and start trying to like uh, dress up your PR campaigns to look like it's shot. In. I'm sure PR agencies are already doing that. Sure. But that's not to say that there's not value there. And times change. There may be a need for a 35-page report from an organizational standpoint, but there's other ways of communicating. And so communicating really comes into play as an important component of of DEI. You can't have a successful strategy with antiquated or just bad communication. Well, and the other thing is those phone videos, they're cheap and quick too, right? It, It would take me two weeks to write a huge report like that. And really, a down and dirty phone video, you're in and out in maybe 15 minutes, and then the response is better anyways. So I think the barriers to demonstrating value in the work have never been less. Mm. And uh, I'm trying to find ways to make more use of it. Right. If someone out there is wanting to learn more about DEI right now, maybe they've never really looked into that before, what's a good resource for them to get started? There are hundreds of news articles. Like It seems like the Wall Street Journal every two weeks is uh, putting out an article that's pretty similar, talking about the, the death of DEI. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's some corporate and financial interests in uh, trying to uh, divest in DEI measures. I think there's some political context as well. Mm. Uh, and I also think that there was sort of a flood of folks into an emerging DEI field in 2020. And 
in that diversity of professionals entering the space, you had folks bringing in different types of training, different types of skills, different tools, and it's rather uneven. And I think that some companies and organizations, they saw immediate success with the DEI efforts that they brought in. And I think that other organizations or companies were looking at it and saying like, well, you know, it was more of a fear of missing out or we need to do this so our employees don't revolt. Their hearts weren't really in it. And maybe the people that were given the opportunity to be, to lead the DEI efforts, maybe they didn't have all of the skills or support or resources they needed to be successful. Uh, so for me, again, this is not a field that I was born into, that uh, I come out of an academic and community organizing background. I feel like the more you can read beyond superficial levels of what are the origins of discrimination, what are the origins of homophobia and racism and ableism, and be able to talk about those issues uh, beyond one or two sentences, it's really key. And this mm. is the point that I wanna end on, is that our approach, we have over 300 people in our organization. Uh, we have probably 5% of our staff who I would say are champions of DEI and early adopters. And they probably look at the work that I'm doing and they're probably frustrated because they don't think it's, uh, it's pushing enough. Mm. I think then we have another 10% that agrees with DEI, would support it, and are also super busy and don't have time within their workday to kind of commit to any anything outside of what's already in their schedule. Yeah. On the far end, there's five to 10% of folks that I'm never gonna move, that they are adamantly stuck in their ways. And then, and then there's this middle, this middle 60% or so. And this 60%, they're not aggressively for DEI and they're not aggressively against DEI. They're just trying to, I think, do their jobs, pay their bills, mm. but also they wanna be good, nice people that don't offend folks. And what I hear more often than not from them is that they're afraid to jump into some of these conversations, not because it's gonna expose their biases, but because they're afraid of maybe saying the wrong thing that offends somebody and they don't they don't wanna hurt anybody's feelings. So it's easier for them to, to just stick with what they know. Mm. When it comes to our programming, we have trainings that cover the minimum requirements for civil rights and equal opportunity. That's across the board. Yeah. But we're not having tons of trainings that are getting pushed out to the entire three to 400 staff because in that middle group, that 60%, more often than not, they're telling me that they want to learn this not through formal trainings, and that when they get invited to trainings, they come into it with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. But if we can handle it in one-on-one -on -one conversations or group conversations that are really catered to their actual needs and the situations that come up in their jobs, where it's a conversation that's built on trust that we've earned together and that they're comfortable sharing and asking questions that they've been sitting on but didn't really know who they could ask. Mm. That's where we're able to, I think, have the best change with that middle 60%. And so we've just tried to find ways that we can multiply the opportunities for having these conversations as much as possible and backed away largely from organization-wide trainings. And Smaller that, trainings with groups that feel like you can actually speak a little bit and, 
a little more collaborative? Yeah, smaller trainings that don't feel like trainings, that feel like conversations. And then this gets me back to the original point. This is why that deeper understanding of some of the, the concepts within DEI is so important, mm. is because if you are going to do a training, a formal training, you have a ton of control. You probably put together the PowerPoint. You know what's going to be on every slide. You're going to be able to really steer the conversation. But in order to be able to jump into these conversations where you're going to have somebody ask you, well, why is Hispanic an ethnicity on the census form and not a race? Or you have people ask, well, you know, what are the origins of queer that when I grew up queer was derogatory and now I hear folks claiming queer? In order to be able to responsibly enter those conversations, educate and guide your organization in ways where they can have these healthy conversations, it requires you to be more fluent across a broader range of topics at a deeper depth. Right. And that's not something that you're going to be able to pick up on a DEI podcast or a textbook. It, I think it really requires constant learning, self-evaluation of where my weak spots are. And then instead of just saying, yeah, that's a weak spot, it's a weak spot that I get angry about and that drives me to dive in and learn and grow personally so mm -hmm. I can better support the people around me. So aim to be more well-rounded from that perspective. More well-rounded, but with a depth of knowledge as right. well. And that I don't think there's a lot of value at this point in 20, near the end of 2023 to be able to give a one-sentence definition of the difference between equality and equity. Mm. I don't think there's a lot of value at this point to be able to give a one or two sentence explanation on the importance of pronouns and why people elect pronoun statements, right? Yeah. That people are asking these questions and when they ask those questions, you have an opportunity to broaden their worlds. But in order to do that, unless you're gonna say, hey, that's a good question, let me get back to you in four weeks, in order to really do that and help them out, you have to focus on increasing the depth of knowledge and and it's not going to come from just one source. I'm going to have to tell you, you got to go to the library and read as much as you can. Education and educating yourself so that you can help educate others. And learn. And when I go to trainings, I'm looking, okay, how are they approaching it? Uh, what are new tips and tools that I can pull from? Not just the activity of what the icebreaker is, but how did that facilitator connect with this angry participant and bring them back on board? Mm. They did it this way. How was it different than when I saw somebody else do it over here? And then how can I kind of put those two pieces together in a way that works to diversify my toolbox yeah. so that at the next time we have somebody who's upset, I don't just have one move to do. We have, we have eight moves that we can draw from, and hopefully one of those gets us to the right place. So you're not just studying DEI. You're studying communication, possibly mediation, interpersonal communication, all types of things come into play. Yes. And I think the biggest skill, though, is within the organization, finding the talent and leadership that already exists that's just waiting for an opportunity. You know when you have to pull in other expertise. And uh, when it's better to bring in other partners. And so you're part of the Principles of Community Committee. Mm. And... I have a relationship with that group and I can come in and say, hey, look, this is the way we're going to do things or this is my vision for DEI for our organization. 
do you want to join me on this? But instead, what I saw in your group and what I saw on our other group, the Diversity Catalyst team for Extension, is I saw these leaders, already existing leaders, who had a vision of what they wanted growth to look like within the, the um, organization, and they just needed additional support, resources, and I think like the affirmation that they're on the right track. And so for me, the best thing I could do would just be to say to POC, I think you're on the right track. Let me carve out a segment of my annual budget for you to support your activities. And then instead of me taking on this project, how can I give you the project and you folks to take the lead on it? And it's been wonderful and like empowering for me to see how these different pockets of innovators and leaders throughout the organization are really grasping at the opportunities and coming up with projects and programs I never could have imagined, let alone bring to life. And uh, nothing makes me happier than to be able to stand in the back of the room when they're having an incredible event uh, and all they needed was just like uh, push play on this thing. Here, yeah. Here's funds, push play, go get them and I'll support you. You can't do everything alone. Sometimes it takes a group. And people are better at everything than me, right? And so the whole thing is when it comes to inclusion, it's inclusion for leadership as well and making space for people to lead. Mm -hmm. Maybe non-traditional leaders, maybe they're going to lead in different types of ways, but making the space for them to lead and then instantly recognizing their contributions. And I think that's what our organization could do better. I don't think we really have a ton of people within our uh, group that's saying, I, I'm not going to lift a finger if you don't give me more money. But we do have folks who are frustrated because I think they have been trying in their own ways for years and they don't feel like those efforts are seen by leadership or the broader organization. And so maybe another important part of being a DEI leader is being able to spotlight these efforts and making sure that they get the attention that they deserve, but also the attention they need mm. to continue to do the hard work of operating outside of their comfort zones. If you could boil down your strategy for leading on DEI, how would you do that? So when you're having these tough conversations or having to make tough decisions or a controversy boils up, you have a choice. Usually it's two choices and it's either you can fight to be right or you can fight to win. And something that I've experienced in other settings is that DEI-centered approaches are fighting too much to be right. This is the correct terminology. This is the way that we should be doing things, that if you don't do it this way, then you're racist or you're discriminatory or exclusive. And the problem with that, or the benefit of that is, okay, yeah, maybe there is a moral victory there, you're also going to bring along the folks who are already on your team. But this approach ends up too often alienating folks who are not already aligned with you. Mm -hmm. And not just alienating them, but they end up kind of digging their heels in a bit and being unwilling to move. Mm -hmm. And so I've been willing to eat a little bit of being right in order to win, which for me means achieving the goals. Bringing and more people on board. Bringing more people on board to hit the targets or the metrics that we've set out as being our vision of success. And so that means that 
I'm maybe not going to be policing language as much if I think giving a little bit of grace in that moment is going to get us closer to our overall goals and then also build that relationship up better to where I can have a one-on-one and maybe address that language issue uh, in a private, trusted, safe setting Mm -hmm. rather than in the middle of a meeting saying, your use of that terminology is violent and wholly unacceptable. Right. And so it would be easier for me to just kind of stay within what's right and being, being the cop over uh, what we should or shouldn't be doing or what we should or shouldn't be saying. But it doesn't consistently turn into the results that we're looking for. And mm-hmm. so part of what I've had to do is to be a little bit more accommodating of things that maybe don't perfectly align with my vision if I believe that doing so is going to help us open the doors towards growth and progress and all that good stuff down the road. And then hopefully those folks will over time begin to see a different way. Yes. And more trust you have in the relationship, the more time and opportunity you have to hang around, hang around their world. And, and yeah. through that, they get exposed to other things. And they get introduced to other things. And you can role model other things. But none of that happens if you take on this air of superiority, of I know better than you. I'm going to shame you. Once that happens, their ears close, their eyes close, and and you've lost them. And so it's playing for the long term rather than the short term. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also focusing on work and results and outcomes over uh, the words that are used in the moment. Right. It's not, it doesn't work all, it's not the, like, prescription for everything at all times, but it has been a helpful way for me to try to uh, support growth, both at a community level, but then also at this organizational level. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Applied. Be sure to tune in for part two of our conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion later this month when I speak with both Dr. Eric Ishiwata and Dr. Ray Black, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies with a focus on African American Studies. The Applied Podcast is produced and sponsored by the Colorado State University Office of Engagement and Extension. You can learn more about CSU's Engagement and Extension programs at engagement.colostate.edu.